Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We have been studying the life of David. Actually, we've just begun this study, looking over the past several weeks at the background surrounding David's call to become the king, his anointing to become the king, the background being that of Saul, the first king of Israel, the the one who was chosen at the insistence of men as they craved after a king like their pagan neighbors, rejecting a theocracy where God is the king and desiring a monarchy where men are kings, right after the period of the judges when every man was doing that which is right in his own eyes. And so we have this backdrop of pessimism and fear when a nation was being led by a king who, in his own heart, did not fear God, but sought the accolades of men, a man who was placed in that position because of image, because of what he appeared to be, chosen by the people because of what he looked like, because of what he appeared he might be able to accomplish, rather than on the basis of his heart. And so God delivers the nation over to their king, over to Saul. And uh, during one of the raids that were commanded, that was commanded of God, a raid that was uh, on a rebellious and stubborn people, a people who had assaulted Israel on their exit from Egypt, attacking their rear flank, killing their women and their children and the weakest and the infirm, God in retribution and in divine justice orders the wholesale execution of this people. And Saul carries out that execution, only he violates the spirit of the law in which God had ordered this execution and spares the king and takes some of the booty for himself. And as the result of that act of rebellion, God strips the kingdom from Saul, although it would be years before that fact would actually be realized. I had the opportunity, uh, while my wife went to Japan, uh, ministering and laboring and working, I had the opportunity to play. So I took a few days of vacation and I went out to play. And I had an opportunity to do some ministry there as well, and uh, I hope that God will use that, uh, that time away. But I, I was impressed with what man has been able to do with the desert. Here you are right in the middle of the desert, in the heart of the desert. Uh, we hear a lot in scripture about the, the isolation and the desolation and the danger of the desert. But man has been able to bring some water into the desert and bring the desert back to life. Uh, I will not forget how we drove through 
various parts of the desert to come to these golf courses uh, and to play some golf in the middle of the desert. Absolutely outstanding beauty, breathtaking beauty. The mountains surrounding, the, the desert surrounding and the, the lush greens and the, actually the water that actually sits in some of these uh, locations and you, you fail to realize you're in the middle of the desert. You don't understand. I mean, it, you have to think to yourself, this is the desert. It doesn't look like the desert. It doesn't smell like the desert. It doesn't taste like the desert. But it is the desert. And we're running around there in the middle of the desert, enjoying ourselves, having ourselves a wonderful time playing in the desert. But there are dangers in the desert, aren't there? There are some very severe dangers in the desert. But you know something, as Christians, I think we can get used to the desert. Even as a non-believer, we can get used to the desert. We spend so much time in the desert, we become comfortable there. After all, nothing's harmed us here. Oh, maybe it's a little hot. Maybe it's a little uncomfortable. And you look at your life and you say, well, my life's not so bad. I don't really need Christ in my life. I don't really need any transformation in my life. Maybe as a Christian, your marriage is in the desert. Maybe as a believer, you have been for years walking in the desert. Nothing has harmed you. You're playing. You're having fun. It looks beautiful. There doesn't appear to be any danger. But rest assured, friend, you're in the desert. And for those of you who might be thinking that you can just wait and you can postpone until tomorrow the things that God has called you to today, rest assured you don't have the guarantee of tomorrow. You may not be sitting here next week. God could invade your life just like that and then suddenly you realize for years I have been living in a virtual desert. May I suggest to you, this world is a desert. We live in a broken world. This world is broken. That's why people die. That's why husbands beat their wives. That's why we have sexual addicts. That's why we have drug addicts. That's why babies die of cancer. That's why the backwoods people in nations across the globe never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, instead worshiping icons and idols. That's the answer to the problem of pain. Have you ever been asked that question? If your God is so real, if your Jesus is so real, then tell me or explain to me why there is so much pain. Why do so many horrible things happen to what appear to be good people? Have you ever been asked that question? The answer is very simple, like Francis Schaeffer used to say. The answer is this simple. We live in a broken world. The world in which you and I live is broken. Now, there may appear to be some oases along the way. There may appear to be some lush greens, but you're still living in the middle of a desert. And every once in a while, every once in a while, either God or Satan reminds you you're living in that desert. Such was the case with Saul. Saul was moseying along at his own pace, leading a nation against other nations, wiping out peoples, claiming land, serving as an agent of divine retribution. But along the way, he began to garner some of that victory for himself, just like Satan did 
when he fell from heaven. Just like Lucifer did when he began to reclaim some of the worship for himself and claim some of the glory for himself and God judged him and a third of the angels and cast them out of heaven. That's where your demons come from. You don't have the guarantee of tomorrow. You don't have the guarantee that tomorrow when you wake up that that's going to be the beginning of the next 10 years of your life. You might face death tomorrow. And then it'll be too late. I believe some of us reach the point of no return. Such is the case with Saul. I was out in the desert and uh, a buddy I was playing golf with hit a ball into off the fairway. Now, if you've ever been out there and you've played any of these courses in Arizona, you're either in the fairway or you're lost. You're one of two places, in the fairway or lost. So we played for quite some time and it just seemed to be safe to go off the fairways. Go look for the ball. I mean, after all, how many dozen balls can you lose before you decide to go look for one? And so uh, he hit one off the uh, fairway into the weeds. And I went over to look for it while he was teeing up his 14th mulligan for that day. And, uh, and I saw the ball sitting in the weeds. And I was ready to reach down into the weeds. And I heard And I looked down, and there was a rattlesnake. And his head was up, poised, looking straight at me, ready to strike. And I said, Mr. Rattlesnake, you can have that ball. I backed off very slowly. How close I came, that close, that close to being bit by a rattlesnake. Right in the middle of the desert where I thought everything was safe. I mean, they warn you ahead of time. They have their prophets and their signs and what have you saying, don't go into the weeds, there's rattlesnakes there. Uh, you might find some critters that you don't want to mess with. We're warned by people. People tell you that's the desert. Remember, you're in the desert, just like you're hearing today. Remember, you're in the desert and it's not safe. But we play. We buck the trend. We think we're safe. We think everything's all right. And then suddenly the snake bites you and grabs you and you're hurting and then you say, why? What happened? I thought it was safe. I thought it was okay. You're in a desert. We walk around in our marriages like everything's all right. We put off change. We put off doing things that are important to take our marriage to another level. We, we hear the gospel. We've heard preachers. We've listened to tapes. We've read books. We've had people share with us, you need to come to Christ. You need to come to Christ. And we say, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And then suddenly, in the middle of what we appear, what appears to be a safe environment, the snake bites. At least I had a warning. At least he rattled a little bit for me. But you know, I even thought about it later. That snake didn't have to stay in those bushes. He could have attacked me. We have this wonderful and beautiful picture of David's anointing. And I'd like to remind you of something as we study this. This is a snapshot prophecy of the Messiah. I want you to see in the life of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why David exists. 
David exists to point us to Jesus. The events and the circumstances and, and the occurrences in his life are designed to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you see him fail, that's pointing you to Christ. When you see him succeed, that's pointing you to Christ. When he whips a giant, that's pointing you to Christ. Even when he wanders into the abyss of his own depression, he's pointing you to Christ. Every event, every circumstance in David's life is designed to point us to the all-consuming fact of the gospel that Jesus Christ is from the line of David. Jesus Christ has come to be the Messiah, to be the one who would die on the cross to deliver us from the brokenness of the desert in which we live. What's your desert? Can you see Jesus in this picture? Well, Samuel the prophet, Samuel the priest, is instructed by God to read the verdict to Saul, which he does. He tells Saul, God's already rejected you. Now, you're going to remain the king for a while, but God's already rejected you. So anything you do from this point on uh, is your reward. This is your reward. From this point on, this is your reward, but you will stand, Saul, one day before a holy God, and you will account for your rejection of him. I do not believe Saul was a Christian. Now, I cannot prove that, and I'm not judge and jury, but I can tell you this. There's no evidence or fruit in Saul's life to indicate that his heart had been regenerated. We talked the last time we were together about the fruits or fruit of a regenerated heart, the early fruits, if you will. And we talked about the integrity of heart. Certainly, Saul did not have a heart filled with integrity. David had a heart that the Psalms tell us was filled with skill and integrity. David had a heart of integrity. He was a man whose word could be trusted as far as his relationship to God was concerned. And so Psalm 78 says, and David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands he led them. But that's not what made him a man after God's own heart, although he had integrity. He also had a shepherd's heart. We talked about that in verse 11 of 1 Samuel 16. It tells us that he was tending sheep. And even after he was anointed king, he went back to tending sheep. David had a shepherd's heart. He was the last of the children to be chosen. He was the guy that was sitting or standing in line when everyone else was picked. When it appeared as though someone else should be the king, he was the eighth son. That number is very critical. It speaks of a new beginning, seven being the end of one era and eight being the beginning of a new era. It's a, it's a number of refreshment. It's a number of renewal. And so David was chosen uh, because he was a man after God's own heart. Here he is tending sheep. But he also knew something else according to Psalm 132. We talked about this the last time. David knew, and I think this is true of everyone who can claim faith in Christ, David knew, my life is not about me. It's about the glory of God in me. It's not about you. You hear me saying that again and again and again. You say, why? Because tomorrow morning, you're going to go back to work, and it's going to be about you. Most of us don't get that message. 
You're going to go home to your wife and you're going to go home to your children and you're going to go home to your husband and guess what? It's going to be about you. It's going to be about what I need, what I want, what I desire, what my rights are. It's always about me. You say, well, why do you tell us that every week? Because we forget it. We forget it the moment we leave. It's still about us. It's not about the glory of God. It's still about me. And if you're honest, you'll admit it. It's a struggle. It's a struggle. But David understood that. He understood it was about the glory of God in him and through him. And while he was still a lad in Bethlehem tending the sheep, what concerned him most was the glory of God. Well, I want to make some very distinct comparisons as I bring this, I believe, a simple message to you that I believe or I hope will show you that David truly is the archetype of Messiah. He truly is the picture of Messiah to come. You can't miss Jesus in the life of David. And so as we study his life, as we explore the ins and the outs of his life, you're going to see the Messiah because it's not about David. The stories in 1 and 2 Samuel are not about David. It's not a story that says, now here, be like David. Teach your children how to slay giants like David did. Teach your children how to lead people like David did. Be like David. That's not what the story in 1 and 2 Samuel is about. It's not a call to be like David. Unless you understand what David understood, that a man after God's own heart is a man who is designed and destined and determined to reflect the glory of God to the Son in him. You see, what makes a man after God's own heart is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the skill of a man, not the integrity of a man, not the abilities of a man. The reason David was called a man after God's own heart is because when you looked at David's heart, you saw Jesus. When you looked at David's heart, you saw Messiah. When you looked at the whole of his life, you realized it wasn't about David. It was about the glory of God in David. David was consumed with the glory of God. The Lord Jesus Christ reigned in David's life. He looked to the day of Messiah to come. Oh, he made some mistakes along the way. We're going to read stories about what David did, even with a heart filled with right motives. I mean, for example, David desired more than anything else to build a temple for God. He never got to build that temple. His son Solomon would build that temple. But David desired a central place where God's people could worship. And when he, when he finally became the king, he realized that the Ark of the Covenant had, had been stored in mothballs. For years under Saul's reign, the Ark of the Covenant, which was the which was the visible presence of God, the, the evidence of God's visible presence. The, 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 the ark was a symbol of God's presence among them, had been put in storage. The people had forgotten the law. They, for, they had forgotten what, what, what God required of them. They, they didn't even know how to worship. David said, we need to pull that ark out of, out of, out of mothballs. And he was excited about the prospects of bringing that ark before the people and having the people come and worship. In other words, he wanted to build a great big family life center for the glory of God. 
He wanted all of Israel to come and experience the glory of God in one place. Now, does that sound like a good motive to you? I do. I think it was a great motive. The man wanted the glory of God to be visible and evidential in the life of Israel. So he brings the ark out of storage. The problem was he did what most men do. He didn't read the directions first. God had specific directions in scripture how to handle that ark. You can't just walk up and touch it. And only certain people can touch it and they can only touch it a certain way. Now we'll talk about that when we come to that incident. I'm only previewing it for a reason. Oftentimes he failed because he didn't read the directions. And you know, some people died to get his attention. I mean, they're walking along and they got this ark on the back of a cart and, you know, like, a, like a, the back of a wagon. They got the oxen moving along and people blowing their horns and their trumpets and they're celebrating, you know, with the glory of God is at stake here. Everybody was excited. They were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. Religious. Oh, yeah. But they didn't read the directions. They were playing in a desert, but they were playing with the wrong tools, messing with the wrong God. He had very clear instructions. Yes, even in the life of David, there are mistakes, but once again, they point us to the glory of God. You see, David would come out of that secret meeting with God where he... Where he loathed himself before the Lord, where he vented his spleen before God and said, what did I do wrong, Lord? How did I mishandle this? And God said to him, you can't approach me casually. You can't just approach me casually your way. I have a prescription, a method, a means by which you approach me. You see, once again, we're being pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one mediator between God and man. Just one. First email I got from my wife, she'll probably tell this story at some point. She got back from Japan. And when the first email that she had sent to me, she said, you know, I'm really under conviction. These people here are so incredibly nice. And we've heard that about um, the cultural aspect of Japan that the people appear to be extremely nice and they treat you very well and um, they are, are polite and what have you. And, and a lot of that is true. And, and yet I was, re and, and her conviction was, you know, these are people who don't know Christ and they know how to, they know how to treat people. How should I as a Christian know, know even more than they do about that? And, and the conviction was that, that if, if they can do this without Christ, what am I supposed to be doing with Christ? And certainly makes a lot of sense. And I remember reading that email thinking, there's something missing here. And the something missing is very simple. Jesus talked about whited sepulchers. And he compared the people that were his prime opposers, those who were opposing him, to those whited sepulchers. From all outward appearances, they were very religious. They were all prim and proper, doing everything right. Appearance meant a lot to them. What I looked like on the outside, how I acted on the outside, how I treated other people on the outside, 
what image I was portraying and how you were reading what I was trying to portray to you. Jesus had that crew of people, and he says to them, you know what you are? You are whited sepulchers. You are white on the outside, but full of dead men's bones on the inside. Your heart is still wicked. Your heart is still depraved. Didn't take but one more email for Sharon to write and say, I've started seeing what the total depravity looks like. And that's true. It doesn't matter Japanese, Chinese, Korean, American, uh, Asian, uh, uh, South American, Hispanic. It doesn't matter what culture or nationality you are. All men, all men are born with hearts that are totally depraved and desperately wicked. It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. You're still, you're still rumbling in a desert. You know, when David was anointed, he was anointed three times. And in all three of these occasions, he's pointing us to Christ. Let me run through this real quick because I think it's going to be interesting for you to see. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 13, uh, David and Christ's anointings are spoken of in the same breath. Samuel anointed David first in a private moment. Now, you need to understand this. Uh, uh, more than likely, his seven brothers and Jesse, the father, did not know what was transpiring here. More than likely, it was a private moment when Samuel walked up to David, still smelling from the sheep, and anointed him. I believe he whispered in his ear, you will be the king of Israel. I don't believe anybody else in the room understood what was going on. I think it was a private anointing. And here's the reason why. 1 Samuel 16, 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Literally translated, by the way, from the presence of his brothers. From among or from the presence of his brothers implies that it was a private anointing. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. You know, the brothers had never seen a king anointed before. There was no fanfare here. This was a private anointing. This was something that was between David and Samuel. This was something that the only, only the two of them in the room even began to understand. Hold your place there and go to Luke chapter 1. I want you to compare this with the first anointing of Jesus, the Messiah. Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. This is the angel in that private moment talking to this frightened little teenage girl. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Just as David was anointed in private for the first time, so what was being carried in the womb of Mary was anointed for the first time. It was a private exchange between God and Mary. It was a private exchange between God and David. No one else knew. Anointed from the privacy of the womb. The second time that David is anointed is before the men of Judah. Go back to 2 Samuel, not 1 Samuel, 
2 Samuel chapter 2. And look with me at verse 4. Now it's a little more public. Now he is coming before the men of Judah. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 4, Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. That's the second time now David is anointed. The first time was in the privacy of that moment, just as Jesus was anointed in the privacy of the womb. The second time is before the men of Judah. Now turn to Acts chapter 10. And I want you to compare this with a very familiar incident in the life of Jesus. You remember when Jesus was about to enter into his public ministry, when he was about the age of 30, he was baptized by John the baptizer. This also was before a public gathering of people who were following after John the baptizer. But look at Acts chapter 10, which is referencing that incident in verse 38. It says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Do you remember when John the baptizer saw Jesus coming and Jesus asked of him to be baptized? And what did John say? I'm not worthy to baptize you. And Jesus then instructed him that this was the entrance point to his public ministry. John then baptized him. And the Bible says that the heavens were opened. And a voice from heaven was heard saying, This is my beloved son. And a dove appeared. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the second anointing. Similar to that that happened with David as he appeared before the men of Judah. Then the elders of Israel anointed David. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 3. 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 3. I tell you all of this for a reason. You can't read the story of David without seeing the life of Messiah. 2 Samuel 5, 3. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. This is when David actually ascends to the throne. Now I want you to compare that with something else. We have, first of all, the private anointing. Then we have the more public anointing that appears or that happens before the people of Judah. Then we have this third anointing when he actually ascends the throne. I love this passage. Turn to Psalm 45 and look with me at verses 6 and 7. You see, what we have here is a picture of the exaltation of Jesus Christ before the 24 elders in heaven. Your throne, verse 6, Psalm 45, your throne, O Lord, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness. You hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Now you have a complete parallel drawn in scripture. Psalm 89, 20, I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil I have anointed him. And then you compare that to Luke 1, verse 32. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
or Acts chapter 2 and verse 30. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. You getting this picture? David is a type of Messiah. Just as David was anointed three times, so David, so Jesus was anointed three times. But here's the point. Between the second anointing of David and the third anointing of David, David was put through severe testing. Severe, painful heartbreak. Privately, he was anointed by Samuel. In that small group of leaders, he was anointed to be the king. But he would ascend the throne between the second and the third anointings. He would have to experience significant heartache, significant testing, significant purging, significant pain. You see, the third anointing of David is his exaltation to the throne. The third anointing of Jesus is his exaltation to the throne. And the way you get to the throne is through the cross. You have to be tested. You have to go through the desert. You know what happens after the baptism of Jesus? What happens after this heaven opens? This voice, this dove, this, all this other wonderful phenomenon going on. This is my son. Listen to him. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And God anoints him in that public setting. What happens next? The Bible says, And the Spirit carried Jesus into the desert to be tempted of the devil. And then you read that incredible story of how Satan carried him from place to place, knowing that Jesus is our high priest. And as our high priest must be tempted and tested in every point like unto us, I believe Satan threw the kitchen sink at him. Men, you struggle with pornography? I believe that Satan threw pornography at him. You struggle with gossip and your tongue and power and a, and a struggle for position and prestige, whatever your struggle is, faithlessness. I believe he threw it all at him. And by the way, I don't believe that when those 40 days were up that Satan stopped. I think he pursued him and pursued him and pursued him all the way to the cross where he thought he gained a victory. I can't even imagine what must have gone through Satan's mind, dark, corrupt, evil mind, when Jesus said, it is finished, and died on that cross. I don't know whether he experienced joy, if Satan can experience joy. I don't know what that kind of pure, and I'm putting pure in quotes here, evil looks like. 
But I can't even begin to fathom what fear must have gripped Satan's soul when Jesus burst out of that grave. When that rock just couldn't hold him, he just came through that tomb and showed himself alive. I think he had this crushing pain on his head. Because Genesis 3.15 said something about Satan's head being crushed. I think he felt the shoe of God on top of his skull. And from that point on, I believe he knew and now knows he is a defeated foe. When a child of God dies, it is the most glorious experience they will ever have. Our faith demands that we believe that. No matter how ugly your death, no matter how painful your death, if you die from a horrible accident or prolonged cancer, or if you lose your mind with Alzheimer's, if you just rot away from the inside out, you're just passing through a desert. You're on your way to exaltation and you have to go through a cross. But once you come through that cross and you suffer the ignobilities of life in this broken world and you come out on the other side, there is exaltation, but there is no way to get from here to there apart from the cross. You must pass through the valley of despair. You must pass through the desert, and there are dangers along the way. Oh yes, there are oases along the way too. There are brooks in the way. Just like we saw those wonderful, beautiful oases in the middle of the desert, and enjoyed and even played in them. We experienced all of them, but around us was danger. Significant danger. So likewise, in this world you will experience great danger. You, like David, if you know Christ, are a man or a woman after God's own heart. Not because of what he sees inherent in you, but because he sees his son in you. That's what makes you a man or woman after God's own heart. The image of Messiah in you. But you have to pass through the cross. Incredible brokenness. A sense of fear, alienation, loneliness, separation from God. Talked to someone recently, and I'll close with this. Talked to someone recently who's committed gross offenses against God. And the price tag for the sin in this person's life is becoming more and more evident. And rightfully so. I mean, if we're going to play those kinds of games, and offend God that way, then we're going to have to experience the consequences along the way. But what hope do you offer someone like that? What hope can you give someone who's thumbed their nose at God and now is suffering the consequences and somehow or another decides, well, it's God's fault that I don't feel very loved. 
it's your fault that I don't feel very loved. Is it God's fault that you don't feel loved when you sin against him? Or is it your fault? Do you have to take the responsibility? You know why you feel alienation from God? Because you are alienated from God. That's why you feel it. If there's sin in your life, if you've offended God, if you're thumbing your nose at Him and you feel alienated from Him, it's because you are alienated from Him. It's because you are estranged from Him. But He hasn't gone anywhere. You're the one that's turned. You're the one that's wandering around in the desert. And you know something? I think what God oftentimes does is He sends a rattlesnake your way to get your attention. If that's what it's going to take, if I have to send my lackey to take a little chunk out of your soul and to inflict that kind of heartache and pain, then that's what I'll do. Because you see, in the long run, I'd rather you lose that hand than lose your soul. You say, does your God operate that way? Have you read any of the scriptures? Do you see what God does in scripture? Do you see what God does to get his people's attention? Do you see what he did to his own son? He did not turn. And rescue his son from the cross, did he? Instead, he turned his back on his only begotten son because he knew that the pathway to his son's exaltation was that cross. And he delivered him over to that cross. Don't you think for one moment, if you don't know Christ, that you have until tomorrow. He sent his son to die on the cross for his people. By faith, you need to put your faith, by faith, you need to put your trust in him today, not tomorrow, today. And believer, if you're wandering around in the wilderness, I guarantee you, even though you're having fun, even though you've been lulled to sleep, there are snakes in them, there are bushes. They're there. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.